Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, February 18th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Yeah, first we'll break down a significant setback for Bluebird Bio's gene therapy program with some help from Dr. Akshay Sharma of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Then our stat colleague Kate Sheridan joins us to discuss her deep dive into flagship pioneering, the superlatively successful venture firm behind Moderna. Just don't call it a venture firm. (laughs) Finally, what's in store for the FDA? After a year that many say dented the Gold Star regulator's credibility, we discuss the prospects for the next commissioner. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. I'm here with Chris Banco, the CEO of Conexa, a software company that powers patient-centric research. The newest version of the Apple Watch includes real advances in terms of collecting health data using fit-for-purpose sensors. Chris, do you think it will help advance the overall use of wearables in clinical research? The Apple Watch will definitely impact clinical research, perhaps most of all by helping participants feel comfortable taking the trial home with them. The days of awkward, clunky-looking sensors are over. For research to truly benefit, it's critical for patients to feel comfortable incorporating these technologies into their everyday life. Today's tools blend right into their routines, and they're not just willing, but often excited to wear them. For more information on Conexa, visit ConexaHealth.com. That's K-O-N-E-K-S-A Health.com. Earlier this week, Bluebird Bio was forced to suspend clinical trials involving its gene therapy for sickle cell disease after receiving reports that two patients treated with the one-time medicine were diagnosed with cancer. These new cases follow an earlier cancer diagnosis in December 2018 and are refocusing attention on whether there's a causal link with Bluebird's gene therapy. While Bluebird investigates, there's rising concern that these cancer cases could have a broader impact across the gene therapy field. We're going to discuss some of the implications of that and one underappreciated aspect of gene therapy with an expert later on in the show. But before we do, Adam, can you tell us what we know so far about any link between Bluebird's gene therapy and these cases of cancer? Yeah, you know, we don't have much definitive information right now because Bluebird has only just learned about the two new cancer cases and is still investigating them. But here's what we do know. So one person who received Bluebird's gene therapy five years ago, and again, this person received the gene therapy because he had sickle cell disease, um, but that patient was recently diagnosed with a form of leukemia. Now, the second case involved a person who received Bluebird's gene therapy more recently, but then rather quickly was diagnosed with myodysplasia syndrome, or MDS, and that's a cancer-like disease that can also progress to leukemia. Now, according to Bluebird, there's no definitive evidence collected yet, which points to its gene therapy as the cause of these cancers. But at the same time, the company can disprove that link. Uh, So for now, its clinical trials have been suspended. So maybe just step back for a moment and explain, at least theoretically, how gene therapy might cause cancer. Yeah, so let's step back even further and and just kind of go over what gene therapy is, right? Gene therapy is a procedure in which a damaged, disease-causing gene is replaced with a healthy gene that functions normally. Now, to do that, they use viruses. These viruses are engineered to be harmless, and they're used to deliver the healthy genetic material into patients because viruses are very adept at infiltrating cells. Now, however, if that virus shuttles the genetic material into the wrong place on a patient's chromosomes, it could, for instance, switch on a cancer-causing gene, or it could disable a gene that prevents cells from turning into cancer. So, you know, the cancer risk 
associated with gene therapy is really small, but still it's enough that companies put in place safety checks to make sure that these viruses don't misdeliver that genetic payload. And still the, these safeguards, however, like they're just not foolproof. So figuring out the root cause of these cancer cases we talked about is obviously deeply important for Bluebird in the short term. But as we mentioned earlier, there are potential repercussions for the entire gene therapy field, right? Yeah, that's true, Damien. So this Bluebird gene therapy uses a particular type of virus. It's called a lentivirus uh, to deliver those healthy genes into patients. Now, lentiviruses are particularly adept at integrating into the genome of target cells, which makes them effective delivery vehicles for gene therapies that target cells that divide or turn over rapidly. So that's true with sickle cell disease, for instance, which involves red blood cells. Um, now, if these lentiviruses are found to carry an unacceptably high cancer risk, uh, you know, that's obviously a big problem for Bluebird, but also for a host of the other companies that are developing gene therapies that utilize lentiviruses as delivery vehicles. So we should note that it's entirely possible that these cases of cancer have nothing to do with the lentivirus component of Bluebird's gene therapy and are rather just due to random chance. However, it's also possible that the culprit is a decades-old chemotherapy called busulfan that is used to prepare patients for gene therapy. This is one of the more underappreciated and less discussed aspects of gene therapy. So to help us understand what's going on with this situation, we're joined by Dr. Akshay Sharma, a bone marrow transplant expert at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sharma. Uh, thank you so much, Damien, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak to all of you today. Well, maybe let's start with your thoughts on kind of the situation overall. When you saw the news, what do you think might be going on here? Honestly, it was a shock to many in the community, both uh, providers uh, who are taking care of patients as well as the patients uh, of, with sickle cell disease. Um, something that uh, we all need to be aware of and, and should be obviously looking out for is that there may be multiple mechanisms which are involved or multiple risk factors which may be involved. I am aware that, uh, you know, many in the field and uh, uh, lay public are definitely concerned uh, that this could be related to lentiviral vectors, as we just talked about. Uh, that is uh, obviously a a factor that is under investigation and a point of concern. Uh, but lentiviral vectors are not unique to sickle cell gene therapy. Lentiviral vectors uh, of some kind have been used in over mul many hundred patients so far for multiple diseases. Um, so that's one aspect that needs to be investigated. But uh, many people don't know that sickle cell disease by itself is a myeloid leukemia predisposition syndrome. Um, there was a study published a couple of years ago from California where they found that the risk of uh, myeloid malignancies in patients with sickle cell disease was very high. Uh, in fact, it was almost four times higher than the general population and patients uh, who had severe sickle cell disease. Uh, and then, of course, there is the question of exposure to myelotoxic agents such as busulfan, which was uh, discovered to be the case in the previous uh, patient that was described almost two years ago. So I want to zoom in on the busulfan aspect in particular. I think people might be surprised to learn that chemotherapy is a necessary step in the gene therapy treatment process. These patients are seeking treatment for an inherited disease like sickle cell disease, they don't have cancer. So why are they getting chemotherapy? 
Damien, that's a very good question. And in fact, that's something that I'm asked all the time when I first meet with patients who uh, want to undergo either transplant or gene therapy. You know, uh, people normally assume that chemotherapy is only used to treat cancer. Uh, but that's not absolutely true. We do use uh, myelotoxic or agents or drugs which are uh, which kill stem cells in order to create space in the bone marrow so that then we can put new stem cells either from somebody else, as happens in the case of a bone marrow transplant, or genetically modified stem cells from the patients themselves back into their bone marrow. So right now, uh, chemotherapy is an essential part of not just gene therapy, but all types of transplants that we are doing for inherited uh, disorders of the hematopoietic system, not just sickle cell disease, but uh, thalassemia, uh, certain bone marrow failure syndromes, immunodeficiencies, etc. Is there an established link between the use of busulfan and an increased risk with so-called secondary cancers, you know, even, even years later? So we know from, you know, giving chemotherapy to patients uh, over the last several years, uh, that there is a direct connection of some myelotoxic agents and development of second cancers down the line. Um, what I mean by second cancer is most of the times, obviously, these chemotherapy agents have been used in patients who have had some type of cancer previously. So uh, these myelotoxic agents, uh, not just busulfan, but uh, other myelotoxic agents such as uh, thiotepa, melphalan, uh, etc., um, a class of drugs that we call alkylators, they are known to be associated with occurrence of cancer um, in these patients many years down the line. Um, and as far as the hematopoietic cancers are concerned, myeloid uh, neoplasms such as AML and MDS are the most common occurrence. So when you sit down with your patients with sickle cell disease to discuss potentially curative gene therapy, what is their reaction to the need for busulfan bone marrow conditioning? To be honest with you, it is a challenge for many patients to grasp that uh, because first of all, they are not prepared to or they don't even know that they are going to receive chemotherapy in order to undergo gene therapy or transplant. There is very little information out there and quite frankly, a lot of misinformation out there about transplant and gene therapy uh, and how these treatments work. And so I always try to make sure that uh, um, all my patients understand uh, completely what the risks are. Um, I try not to give them percentages because, you know, to say something like there's a 20% risk of X, Y, and Z is is not appropriate, uh, in my opinion, because when it happens to that patient, for that patient, a 20% risk doesn't mean anything. For them, it's either 100% or, or 0%, right? Um, and so I try to tell them what's common, what's going to happen, what might happen, and what's unlikely to happen. And at the same time, I try to um, help them understand these risks and balance them with the risks associated with uh, their underlying sickle cell disease. Uh, you know, many patients who are choosing to undergo either transplant or gene therapy currently, they obviously have severe sickle cell disease to begin with. So sickle cell disease is a pretty bad disease, which reduces the life expectancy by almost half. But when I'm talking to a patient who is in their teenage years or early 20s, it's very difficult for them to grasp that. And that's what I 
envision and I try to do in in multiple meetings when I'm discussing um, either gene therapy or transplant with them so that they not only look at the acute toxicity and the side effects of chemotherapy, but also the long-term picture of what might happen if they choose not to undergo transplantation, especially if they already have a very severe sickle cell disease. So you've been following the efforts to develop safer drugs than, than Busulfan for bone marrow conditioning. How far along are these research programs? And is there anything to your mind that seems particularly promising? There are at least three agents which I believe are quite far advanced in their clinical or preclinical development. So one agent uh, that I have seen, which seems to be quite promising, are CD45 antibodies, which are labeled with uh, radioactive antigen. Um, there is a trial which is ongoing currently called the Sierra trial, which enrolls patients with uh, AML and MDS. It's restricted to adult patients right now who are unable to to- tolerate chemotherapy prior to transplant. And in that trial, uh, the CD45 labeled to radioiodine has proven to be a much safer alternative and much effective alternative, honestly, compared to chemotherapy drugs, which certain older patients are frankly unable to tolerate. Another agent which uh, we have recently learned about is a CKIT antibody, which has been used in patients with severe combined immunodeficiency. It's a naked antibody. Uh, CKIT is an antigen which is present on uh, hematopoietic stem cells. Uh, it's been used in patients with, in a clinical trial with patients with uh, severe combined immunodeficiency out of Stanford. Uh, and the results, honestly, in those patients have been quite promising. And uh, those are pediatric patients, I must point. Magenta Therapeutics has another um, drug that they are currently developing, uh, which has the same CKIT antibody combined to a, a, a cytotoxin. There was data presented by Dr. John Tisdale at uh, I believe last year's ASH conference, where he showed uh, in two monkeys, um, they used this antibody and it was able to completely deplete their hematopoietic stem cells. And then they were able to rescue that by giving them autologous gene modified uh, stem cells. So Dr. Sharma, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, when you, when you talk about these bone marrow conditioning processes, you know, both self and the side effects there, you have to balance that with the fact that these patients have severe sickle cell disease. And, you know, there's obviously risks associated with that. But I wonder, you know, if you look ahead to a point where maybe gene therapy for sickle cell disease is approved um, and does require bone marrow conditioning with busulfan, uh, at least initially, like how widespread of acceptance do you think you'll see this gene therapy in the sickle cell patient community? Yeah, Adam, that's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, But I think we have to assume that exposure to busulfan you know, whether it is related as it pertains to development of second cancers or as it pertains to all these other side effects, including infertility, which is uh, a major concern for patients undergoing curative therapies for sickle cell disease, I think it does make a a, a huge impact. And uh, it does in some way reduce the acceptance of these novel curative therapies to only a few patients who are 
obviously seeing an impending mortality risk to them. You know, obviously every therapy has its own side effects, but if you can show that the side effects associated with gene therapy and the conditioning that it requires are obviously less than the side effects associated with the disease itself in the long term, in the next 20 to 40 years, uh, I think that's what's it finally going to lead to a widespread acceptance uh, of these gene therapies, at least in the developed countries. Dr. Sharma, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. Venture capitalists are some of our society's best self-mythologizers. If you spend time around VCs, in biotech or otherwise, you're likely to hear about how they live at the absolute bleeding edge of new ideas, and about how they're exceptionally good at turning those ideas into large sums of money. There's perhaps no better example of this than flagship pioneering, the Cambridge, Massachusetts-based venture fund that has made a mint on its seed investment in Moderna. The firm has produced dazzling returns in recent years, and by its own account, that's the result of simply thinking better and harder than other VCs. One press release described the company as unique, disruptive, unforeseen, and unprecedented, all in the same paragraph. But a clearer explanation of flagship success can be found in the firm's culture, which former employees say is hardly for the faint of heart. Stats' Kate Sheridan reported out an excellent story about how flagship actually works, and she joins us today to talk about it. Kate, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. So flagship's claim basically is that it's unique among venture firms that invest in biotech. What did you learn in your reporting? Do they actually go about this business so differently? The answer to that question is a little complicated. It's yes and no. I think flagship is possibly unique uh, among venture firms for filing its own patents. That is pretty unusual for a venture capital firm, even in biotech. Um, and their mindset, I think, truly is actually a little bit different um, than, than other venture capitalists. A lot of folks I spoke to at flagship certainly believe that, as you say. But also the, the things that they learn, the things that they find most valuable and important, it's not necessarily um, a therapeutic from the get-go. It's it's the idea itself, um, which I think is really interesting. However, uh, some of the things they do are very much similar to, to other venture capital firms. Um, the way they spin out companies, the way they fund their companies um, is like what any venture capital firm would do. There are series A's, B's, C rounds. They also, um, like many other kind of venture creation style firms, support their companies by offering administrative functions that are kind of housed within the firm itself. So while Flagship definitely has its unique points, um, it's not necessarily wholly unique, I suppose. So much of the firm's culture and trademark bravado seems to start with Nubara Fayan, Flagship's founder and CEO. What's he like and what role does he play in the organization? Like every firm, of course, Flagship has a set of partners, and I don't want to minimize their contributions, certainly not not in the slightest. Um, but based on my reporting, um, Nubar really is the, the firm's North Star. You know, he sets the tone, he guides and shapes the philosophy. Many people contribute to the culture, but it really does seem um, that he plays a really fundamental role in in defining what Flagship is and does. One of the things that, that struck me reading this is, is so much of the the flagship magic is not just, you know, the ideas, as you mentioned, and then also the financial success, but it's very much one of like branding and marketing. And you touched on this in your story, but this seems to come from a fan and be shared along the way or, or down the line, I should say. Flagship is very invested in like the semantics and the descriptions of its work. Like, what did you learn in, in reporting it out? When a source of mine told me that uh, the quote that's that's included in the article about se semantics and, and word choices being very, very important um, to Flagship and specifically to Nubar, 
that just clicked immediately for me, right? I think we've all seen the press releases for companies um, that describe the work they're doing in in really grand terms. Um, and this this approach is very intentional, as Flagship has told me repeatedly. Um, they take crazy ideas. That's what they do. That's their whole shtick. Um, but I think it was really interesting to kind of see um, from people who who had a lot of experience at the firm that that's where it comes from, that it does come from um, from the top. So, Kate, tell us a little bit about the process that Flagship uses to kind of find these Modernas in the making and and why there are so many whiteboards. Yeah, for sure. So uh, about the whiteboards, that's kind of what someone told me they spent a lot of their time um, doing. And what they do with those whiteboards is basically just kind of think, uh, think out loud on the whiteboards. They don't think necessarily about what kind of drug um, they might like to make, but rather what kinds of concepts might fit together to make something that could be interesting uh, and potentially useful. The call of scientific experts and uh, what Flagship likes to hear from these experts is not this idea is a great one, but rather this idea is is crazy. It'll never work. It's a little bit out there. That's that's what they go for. And if all of that sounds sounds good and if they can file broad patents, um, they will consider building a company around it. They express these ideas in the form of what if statements eventually, uh, not what if we can make a better jack inhibitor, but what if cells could talk to each other. And then eventually if the if the partners like the idea, um, they'll they'll put some money into it and they'll find some lab space for it and they'll start um, testing some of the basic ideas and and run some of the basic experiments to support the idea. In that way, at this point, um, we start getting a little bit closer to that venture creation model that that folks in the industry will will know. Um, but that's that's the early stages anyway. So the process sounds wacky and like it couldn't possibly work. Um, you know, I guess in one sense. You have to say, isn't it good that people are thinking like this and and people who have the resources to try these things are thinking so differently um, rather than like, what if we can make a better jack inhibitor? I mean, we do need better jack inhibitors, presumably. Also, those could serve a role, but, you know, it's kind of a different a different approach. And we mentioned before that Flagship's been incredibly successful in making money for its investors. So how much better is the firm doing than its peers? Uh, it's doing very, very, very well for itself. I want to caveat everything I'm about to say by saying that my numbers are a little out of date. I'm planning on updating them later this year. Um, and also that these numbers will include uh, the value of a liquid holdings in stocks, for example, and in companies that aren't even public yet. Um, so all that said, um, flagship's performance has been really exceptional. Uh, the the data that I've been able to collect indicate that for one fund, uh, they've been able to create a 9x return. So $1 into flagship in their 2010 fund would create $9 as of the end of 2019, which is massive. Um, it's really massive. Their performance overall, I found in in one of my reports, is less consistent perhaps than some other firms who have been just machines and churning out um, pretty good returns, but not 9x returns. Um, but ever since flagship decided to go all in on venture creation, their performance has been really, really quite good. That 9x is before the pandemic? That's before the pandemic. I mean, wow. So sitting here in 2021, you know, Flagship has made all of this money and it's become something of a household name, at least in our corner of the world. But, you know, that's all taken place during a prolonged boom for biotech in general. So how does Flagship keep up this pace? And, you know, do they have a plan to adapt if the broader market sours on biotech? Yeah, I mean, the rubber really meets the road for biotech venture capital firms when IPOs happen. And so far, it's been a very good time to be a biotech company 
IPOing. Um, people have been able to to put companies out in the market that don't have clinical data or even really the promise of clinical data. Uh, we saw that a little bit with Sana. They haven't started clinical trials yet and won't for for quite some time. Ultimately, that that kind of data is going to be what makes flagship and its investors money. So if people start demanding more evidence from companies that are that are going public, then flagship is going to be stuck funding companies much later into the development process while still trying to maintain the kind of massive ownership stake that they typically have. But that said, flagship is a firm that I think really prides itself on being able to evolve. Um, they are doing some new new things, some of which I don't uh, think I fully understand yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing how they play out. I'm thinking right now about um, pioneering medicines, which, again, is a new initiative that I'm still trying to fully understand, um, but potentially uh, is is one way for them to to move away from being completely dependent on the performance of untested companies in the public markets. Well, Kate, thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is a podcast focused on biotech, uh, and no federal agency is more important to this industry than the Food and Drug Administration. Actually, one could argue, and we did on Wednesday night in an impromptu conversation on the audio social networking app Clubhouse, that the National Institutes of Health is also up there, given how much basic research it funds. But Francis Collins is sticking around as NIH director. So today, we're going to focus on who President Joe Biden will pick to lead the FDA. So the race, according to multiple media reports, including one from our own stat colleague, Nick Florco, comes down to FDA veteran Dr. Janet Woodcock versus Johns Hopkins University's Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, who is seen as less drug industry friendly. And the lobbying is strong for both candidates. Uh, earlier this month, 85 national groups ran a full page ad in the Los Angeles Times supporting Woodcock, calling her a passionate advocate for patients and consumers, an ally to patient advocacy groups and a fearless leader at the FDA, where she has served since 1984. She's currently the acting FDA commissioner. Meanwhile, a group of doctors and public health experts published an open letter in support of Sharfstein, saying he would strengthen the FDA's gold standard as a regulator. Others have gone on the attack in favor of Sharfstein and against Woodcock. Most notably, perhaps, is Yale epidemiologist and AIDS activist Greg Gonsalves, who accused Woodcock on Twitter of being a little too close to the drug industry that she regulates. But is it really down to just these two? And how important is Biden's pick for who leads FDA in the midst of this pandemic? And after the agency's reputation took a beating for capitulating to President Donald Trump on hydroxychloroquine and convalescent plasma. So guys, I wonder your thoughts, you know, Adam, you know, is this pick more important than usual for the FDA? Well, I think for the reason that you stated, Meg, it, it is really important. I think that we all have seen the, the credibility of the agency, you know, from a science perspective, take a hit over the last four years where politics intruded into decision making processes, the policy initiatives at the FDA. You know, we've we've had podcast episodes and segments about this. Um, so from that perspective, you know, bringing in somebody who can help restore the the image of the FDA, the credibility of the FDA within the scientific community, within the general public, I think is is really important. And I wonder also, Damien, I mean, what do you think the the job of this new commissioner is going to be, and how is it similar or different to, you know, what we heard from Helen Branswell last week for Rochelle Walensky, the new CDC director, and needing to potentially, you know, boost morale at the agency, or is the sort of external public trust even more important for FDA? I think that's interesting because I, I think both of those things 
are probably top of mind for the people looking to pick someone, which is to say that, you know, as Adam mentioned, the FDA has been bruised uh, this past year in the public eye, but that has also undoubtedly had an effect on, you know, the internal politics of the agency. And then, you know, maybe most importantly, their ability to retain talent, which as we know, is just a long time struggle at, at FDA, which employs people who quite often can make more money um, at the companies regulated by the FDA. But then you have also the the public perception aspect, which which has not gone well, I think, by all accounts in 2020 related to um, you know the relationship with Trump, but also, you know, a, a few other things. I mean, even even dating back to the opioid crisis and and some of the um, issues around vaping that that predate even the last FDA commissioner. So I guess you know the next person, whoever it ends up being, will have to kind of fight that battle on both fronts to to reassure the people within the agency such that they stay around and stay committed to the mission, but also to reassure the United States at large that you know as you mentioned this sort of gold star regulator is how it's long been perceived is still an efficacious and important institution. So Meg, you know, we're we're one month, roughly one month into the Biden administration, and we're having this discussion about who the next FDA commissioner will be. Do we feel like, you know, do we do we wonder why the decision or why naming that person is taking this long? Or, you know, is this kind of standard practice? Actually, looking back at the history, and I have to credit Damien with actually doing this research and telling us about it, um, you know, previous FDA commissioners often were not sort of named until um, April or May or nominated. Um, it is a position that needs to go through Senate confirmation, so it's more complicated than naming the CDC director. But as we've been talking about, we're in a pandemic where the FDA is so important. We're about to, you know, see the next uh, review of a COVID-19 vaccine next week. The J&J vaccine has its advisory committee meeting on Friday the 26th. So the FDA is playing this integral role and it. It's not just for vaccines. Uh, it's for tests. It's for, um, you know, drugs. I, I mean, it's a lot of things for the pandemic. And then, of course, everything else that it does. Um, and so, yeah, one would think maybe you you would have heard a little bit more of a concrete discussion around who it might be. And, and of course, we've been hearing about these two different candidates, but there's a lot of suggestions that it might actually not be down to these uh, only two candidates. Yeah, I think what's maybe more unusual, you know, Meg, is that we just haven't heard other names floated out there. You know, we've heard these two names, right? Woodcock, Sharfstein, and it's pretty consistent um, and you would think that maybe that other names would get floated out there, you you know, they'd get into the press. I mean, I'm not like totally plugged into the whole D.C. thing, but even like the really most plugged in D.C. reporters haven't been writing stories, speculating on other potential FDA commissioner nominees. And I think that's sort of unusual. I'll mention two names that I have heard not as, you know, from a from a well-placed source in terms of saying they are actually under consideration, but from somebody who has advocated on behalf of cancer patients um, saying, why not Rick Pazder, who, of course, has been leading the, the cancer unit at FDA forever? And why not Amy Abernethy, who is a more newcomer to um, leadership at the FDA, you know, who we know for her work at Flatiron um, and who has done a lot with real world evidence and uh, big data um, and who could bring a different kind of perspective as commissioner in that way? I think it's interesting, you know, thinking about Rick Pazder, Amy Abernathy, and, and, and somewhat by extension, Janet Woodcock versus Joshua Sharfstein in that the differences between them are not partisan. Like, I I'm not sure that there's like a discrete Democrat or Republican way to run the FDA, but they're definitely ideological. And so, you know, when you hear things about like good advocate for patients um, or, you know, flexible regulator or open minded or et cetera, 
that's often put in contrast to someone like Sharfstein, which is maybe a little bit unfair to him. I don't think he's close-minded per se, but like, the, you know, the traditional idea of the regulator who who keeps industry in line in, in, in the idea of protecting the safety of the American public. And I wonder sometimes that push and pull gets a little bit, it can be a little bit reductive because we frame the FDA so often in the context of new medicines. Um, I think there's probably a large contingent of people within the FDA and within you know, the health community in general, who look at Sharfstein not as a hardliner on the drug industry, but as a person with an admirable record in public health. And, and that includes tobacco and regulating food and all the other things that the FDA does. So it'll be interesting to see like how those constituencies kind of line up as this conversation goes on, because it's, you know, it's an agency that does much more than just review new drugs. And I guess, Adam, maybe I'll put potentially last question to you. Um, since you've been covering this industry the longest, um, Janet Woodcock has been at FDA since 1984 and in, in you know, real leadership roles, at least since 1994. Um, you kind of can't be at an agency like that for that long without some bad things happening. Um, and a lot of those are kind of laid at her feet. Um, you know, there, the letter supporting Sharfstein mentions uh, for the FDA bad decisions. It says around opioids, um, hydroxychloroquine, obviously, during this pandemic, uh, Vioxx, and Eteplerson, of course, the drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy we've talked a lot of it about on this podcast, which just seems like a clear uh, shot to against Woodcock, given she was so integral in that decision. I wonder just your, your kind of thoughts on having covered this industry so long, how much of that can sort of be said is, is you know, tied to Janet Woodcock's decisions? And how much is, you know, the agency as a whole, and she was there during it? You know, the thing that strikes me about Janet Woodcock is that I think that she is very much a person who has um, tried to advance the FDA. And I think she's she, she thinks about the FDA, the legacy of the FDA, what the FDA can do when she's making some of these controversial decisions. And I think like the Ateplerson decision, for instance, was probably one in which, you know, she was thinking there about, you know, what impact that decision would have on the FDA. Let's say, for instance, if they had rejected Ateplerson uh, and it was later found out to be an effective drug, because essentially what you would have done is denying a, a medicine for for dying children. And that that could cause a lot of blowback on the FDA. So for her, it was a better decision to approve the drug, even if the evidence supporting that drug was, uh, you know, let's just call it iffy or controversial. Um, you know, on the same side, you know, she's also somebody who has probably more than anyone else tried to bring the patient perspective into the FDA um, and make sure that sort of the regulators realize that they're not reviewing drugs and making the decisions in a vacuum, that patients are very much at the center of everything that the FDA does on the drug side. So with all of that said, we should note that for all we know, it may not even come down to these two potential candidates. And furthermore, there may not be that much of a sense of immediacy within the White House because, you know, Meg, as you mentioned earlier, Janet Woodcock is currently acting commissioner and um, is obviously qualified for that role if she's qualified to be the actual commissioner. So we may have just spent a lot of time dancing around an issue that, that isn't super pertinent. So before we go, the first two episodes of Stat's new podcast, First Opinion, launched this week. Host Pat Skerritt sits down with emergency room physician Jay Baruch and health equity specialist Lauren Powell. Listen to First Opinion on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embonado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and who you think should lead the FDA. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.